Ossert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the Ossert Podcast, Share Today, Save Tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and for this episode, I'm joined by cyber forensics expert, Shanna Daly. Our conversation hits forensics, where we talk about Shanna's career in cyber forensics and how she made her start. We also get into the challenges that investigators face in today's world, and what we can do about cognitive bias, and why it's an important issue for the industry to address. Then it's over to my co-host, Beck, who chats with Mark Carey-Smith, about next year's OSCERT conference and the team's quest to improve diversity and inclusion, as well as how they support new speakers who have never spoken at conferences before. So I'm joined here today by Shanna Daly. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself, Shanna? Hi, thanks for um, having me today. I've been in information security for about 20 years and more recently have been specialising in digital forensics and incident response. I've spent about 10 years doing that as a consultant, so I'm very passionate about what happened and how it happened in organisations, particularly after breaches. Digital forensics is a pretty fascinating area, and it's it's quite broad. Depending on who you ask, they have very different perspectives on what this actually means, because it's anywhere from CSI to Sherlock Holmes kind of stuff in the way people approach it. Can you just tell us, what is, what is digital forensics from your perspective? Digital forensics is a very, very wide scope, and it definitely is everywhere between CSI and really simple things. But digital forensics essentially is looking for evidence of actions in digital evidence. So that might be artifacts of an attacker. It could be somebody who accidentally deleted something or deleted backup. So it's looking for evidence of how something happened at a low level on the on the actual hard drive or an image of the hard drive. So it can be super, super low level and technical, but there is that other side that is a little bit more like an art, which is coming up with the hypothesis. So I think that the threat actor might have exploited this vulnerability to gain access. So then you go and look at the evidence on that disk and find out, does my hypothesis stack up? And if it does, here is the evidence that does that. So it is very methodical and it is like putting a pieces of a puzzle together. But one where you don't necessarily know what the picture is at the start. It's not like you've got yeah. a picture on the box at the beginning to work from, isn't it? Exactly. And that's the, I think that's the fascinating thing that you get to create that picture out of nothing. You're not sure what has happened, if anything has happened. So you're able to then make that picture come to life, which... I obviously am sounding excited by it, but, you know, that's not something that people generally want to hear is, here is how you got attacked. Yo, I'm so excited. It's often one of the very first questions, and I've come from working in the information security media, where one of the first questions you ask is, who did it? Like, who who got you? Yeah. Um, is, I mean, digital forensics isn't necessarily always about attribution, but it's probably got a... TV shows give us the feeling that it's a bad attribution. Like, what are the goals that people are trying to achieve? It can be attribution. So it really depends on the different kind of use cases or the areas. So if you're in law enforcement, for example, you probably are looking at attribution. And that's to, for prosecution. So, you know, we're talking about attribution. I don't mean nation state. It's a particular individual. 
did they do that crime and is there any evidence on this computer or handheld device that backs up the fact that they did that crime so maybe browsing activity that suggests that they did actually set fire to their property for insurance purposes things like that so there is that kind of attribution but it is very difficult to do that attribution on a broader scale for organizations when it comes to you know, international nation state cyber espionage and things like that but the artifacts that we do pick up and gather do help to paint a picture of attribution overall but there, you need a lot of data to mm. actually get anywhere near attribution that's somewhat accurate yeah and we often hear stories of you know so-and-so did it all that country was the perpetrator and three months later digital forensic experts come back and say well actually you know, that was an easy finger to point, but it was wrong. You know, there's other evidence now. And I guess that's the other thing is, look, it's not just about attribution. What are some of the things that people try to learn through a digital forensics exercise? So separating digital forensics too from incident response a little bit. Incident response tends to be very much real time in the now. What is the business impact and how can we get over that? in this very minute and then digital forensics tends to run either in parallel or a little bit later in slower time Mm. so digital forensics will help to discover is there more scope are there more systems involved than we actually realized when we're in our panic phase for the first few days is how did they get access which is super important as well often can't find that until you delve a little bit deeper was there remote access open did they get access through one of the appliances? So we tend to want to let people understand, here is the exact scope. You need to remediate this section of the network or these of these systems, and this is how they got in. Because if you don't know that scope or that initial access, then often they will just come back. So do you find that when you go and talk to a client and you go through this exercise and you say, well, I've got to go and look at what you've what you've actually got do they they often start with the yeah but we've invested x hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in our security it couldn't possibly be something as simple as we left the remote access door open or the administrator used a weak password or anything like that do you often find that the people you go and help are resistant to the idea that they could have made a mistake yeah and and definitely but it's not always even making a mistake often they would say we don't have anything that anyone would want why would they do that? Smaller organizations that get hit by ransomware, again, they often don't even realize that their attack surface is so open. They're just told, you know, my third party needs remote access, so they set up remote desktop. Hmm. And they're unaware of the consequences. Often, we, we do get some organizations or some people that will turn around and say, no, it's not possible. You know, there's no way that they could have gotten in. You know, sometimes, well, the ACSC are telling you something different. Yeah. <laughs> they're actually yeah. telling you that something's going on. So, yeah, yeah there, there can be a little bit of resistance to hearing that someone's done something wrong. Have you found that, like, you said you've been doing this for 20 years, which means you started when you were about four, I think, yeah. or something like that. But so you started that. Yeah. In the <laughs> but like, you've been doing this for a long time and things seem to have accelerated a lot, particularly in the last you know, five or six years, I think, when we look at cyber, is it actually becoming harder to do effective digital forensics because the threat surface has changed substantially and the threat vectors are different? And it seems, 
Like from a net, from my point of view, it looks like there are a lot more bad guys out there trying to do stuff. Like how much harder has the job gotten? Yeah, definitely all of the above. A lot more threat actors. So, you know, 10, 15 years ago, not so much in terms of cybercrime. That has changed now. I think, you know, there's, there's jokes around COVID. You know, even the cybercriminals, you know, the mafias, they went from, you know, normal crime to cybercrime hmm. in the shift. The amount of systems online, definitely. So all of your IoT devices, everything is online these days. So there is a lot more that can be breached. The amount of data that we now see, hard drive sizes are ridiculously high. Um, you're getting terabytes and terabytes. Even on a, a laptop, you can have two terabytes. So it becomes a lot of data. And the more data you have, it's great, but it also means it takes more time to process and analyze. And so we're, we're locked by the amount of hard drive um, space and speed that we have access to. So there is that. And then there is the move to cloud infrastructure and things like containers and ephemeral containers that might spin up and be 20 seconds. You have a container up and then down and it's gone. So how do you collect evidence from things like that in order to ensure that if something has happened or does happen that you know what has gone on in that cloud environment? So it's always changing and, and I think I definitely agree that in the last five years it has sped up a lot more than what it did any time before that for us to be constantly chasing how are we going to do this next challenge. So if the evidence is ephemeral, potentially, and it only existed for you know, 20 seconds could be a long time in, yeah. in container land, if the evidence of the attack only existed for a very short period of time, where do you even start looking? You then, if you don't have access to what that might have been, you do then look around what other systems that would have accessed it? Is there any configuration that might have been changed that would have caused that malicious action in that container? So you have to look at what affected that container running that might have caused malicious activity. So there are ways around it. We often don't have the evidence that we need and we need to look at other things to determine what was those activities. If we don't have event logs on a workstation, for example, there are other activities or other artifacts we look at to determine what the user actually did during that time. So if someone wanted to have your job, where would they start? It's a, always a hard one. I got, a, I got my job because I knew someone who did fire twirling, so it's a bit hard <laughs> to recommend that. Um, I came from a help desk background. I did IT support for an ISP. So I think having a technical background is very, very advantageous. So sysadmins, network engineers, IT admins, all have the fundamentals of understanding how a network works, understanding how systems work. Making that move into digital forensics, at the moment I'm pretty much encouraging people to look at capture the flags. So mm. capture the flags are exercises or cyber security exercises that mm. you can go and do and demonstrate your knowledge and learn new skills. So. Unfortunately, I don't think digital forensics is a profession that you can walk into without showing some sort of skill set prior to. But there are a lot of, I would say, soft skills that come into digital forensics that you can leverage project management, even attention to detail, reporting. If you've got even someone like an accounting background that's come from sifting through large amounts of data and finding anomalies, things like that. You may not know the tools and how to run the tools and how to look for exactly what you need to know. All of that stuff can be learnt, but there are definitely some of those soft skills that come into play. Yeah, things like, what about curiosity? Yeah, 100%. Uh, yeah. Yep. Problem, like problem solving 
is a weird like it's funny because problem solving means different things to different people but even just being able to look at something and go that looks weird yes you know yeah. i think it's it's almost like the spidey sense when we walk down a street and we yeah. see something that doesn't look quite right so we cross the yeah. road is it is it having almost that kind of sixth sense yeah and i mean that's something that comes with experience so yeah. and that's why i like to think think you know it admins or network admins they understand how a network generally should look so then picking out an anomaly or something that doesn't look quite right is a a lot easier for them because they've been there, done that. But we used to have in my team at Verizon, we would have everything from ex-law enforcement with no technical skills to do interrogations. So, you know, when you're working in a big organization, that's a bit easier. So we would have people that would just specialize in doing interrogations when it came to talking to either the victims or the potential perpetrators as well. So, you know, there's a very large gamut of skill sets within digital forensics. Um, I think as with anything in cybersecurity, networking is a really big part as well. The other thing that you have a really special interest in is in cognitive bias and actually understanding what that is. Do you want to just very quickly just define what cognitive bias means in the context of the work you do? So cognitive bias, or it's otherwise known as unconscious bias, but I don't like using the word unconscious bias because it suggests that we can't change it because it's unconscious. But the um, cognitive biases that we display naturally that generally come from all of our life experiences, it, it dictates how we respond or what we respond to certain situations. So there are a lot of different cognitive biases and they affect different people in different teams. So I talk about how diversity within teams and particularly security teams can actually have an impact on an organization's security. So Imagine that you have somebody who doesn't speak back to their seniors, you know, authority bias. If they just say yes to everything and they're told to do something that maybe they know they shouldn't do or they know that is going to be a bad idea, but they do it because they don't want to speak up or speak back, that can cause security issues, you know, the alert fatigue and recency bias. So what I did yesterday, I'm going to do today because yesterday it was right, so it must be right today can also, you know, make somebody miss. It was a false positive yesterday, but today it's actually a real alert and that can be missed. So there are a number of different biases that affect a team and how a team can perform and potentially the security of an organization as part, as part of that. And I talk a little bit about how diversity helps to overcome those challenges within a team and, and bring together a bit more of a well-rounded team. So, I mean, diversity you know, been a bit of a, it's almost been a bit of a bumper sticker for the InfoSec industry for the last, you know, few years at least. And it typically is mainly focused on gender diversity, but it's more than just gender diversity. I mean, what are some of the other diverse personalities or things that you talk about that you think are important? Yeah, so it's, I mean, definitely not just gender. Gender is just one part of that. And I think we also forget too, when we're sort of talking about men and women, there are actually three categories, I guess you could say, men, women, non-binary, or people who don't identify as either. And that is an important thing to consider, that we're not just looking at 50-50 yeah. when it comes down to it. But also neurodiversity, so having a lot of people who... Think, like think differently yeah. about problems, see the world um, through different lenses. Interview processes can be very difficult in in person very in your face interviews can be extremely difficult for people that have neurodiversity 
situations so how do we overcome that to bring in people mm. that do think a little bit different but maybe can't get over those barriers of entry race where people come from the authority bias is a big one actually when it comes to race so there is an index worldwide where different cultures actually have more chance of authority bias than others so some of the more third world countries will be less inclined to talk back where countries like australia and the us they will probably tell more you, likely to question yes, it more, more likely say, to question actually no but yeah those countries out there that don't talk back and then when you consider if you've got women from those countries as well you need to support them a little bit more and make sure that you know if they're not talking in a meeting they're not being rude or maybe they don't they do have something to say, but they don't feel comfortable mm. to talk up because of their upbringing, how they've been brought up. So so um, what, what's something that a team can do to discourage cognitive bias or to, to flip that around a little bit? Are there specific tactics that someone can bring into their team to say, right, you know, for example, I know Shanna doesn't ask a lot of questions in meetings or doesn't question a lot of decisions. What's something I can do to, to change that? Or, you know, whether that's a, a, is it a behavioral thing for the person asking the questions or in authority? Is it something the whole team does? Is there a bit of a variety of tactics? I think it needs to come from the whole team and definitely in an organization that does need to come from the top down. It's not something that can be pushed up. People work in different ways. We know that. And especially over the pandemic, we see how people can work in different situations, having different ways to give feedback. So in, in that example, maybe someone doesn't want to speak up in the meeting directly, but if you hosted that meeting and you know that that particular individual is not likely to talk up in front of everyone, maybe after the meeting, go and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them or invite them to send through their feedback via email if they're more confident mm. sending feedback via email rather than talking face-to-face. -face. So it is a little bit about having management that will take the time and have a little bit of empathy in how they interact with people and understanding that everybody actually interacts differently, learns differently and communicates differently. Have you found that over the course of your career and following this, that are we, are we still kind of the same? Are we no better at doing this than we were in the past? Do you, do you see that, sort of see that you know, workplaces, particularly in cyber, are getting better at accepting diversity and not just accepting it, but you know, taking great advantage of it? Yeah, definitely. Organisation by organisation, you know, country by country. But yes, definitely it is a lot better than it was 20 years ago. I've always been, you know, that girl in cybersecurity. You know, generally I started when I was 20. So a young girl in a group of men and boys. Was I was going to say probably a bunch of middle-aged white men. <laughs> yeah, very difficult to be a part of because, you know, at 20 I thought I was super mature and old. And you look back and I think oh, I was just a kid. And all of the things that I had to deal with, I'm hoping that most of those things are not things that, that young women have to deal with today. Mm. And thankfully, I do communicate on, or, and talk to a lot of young women who are getting really, really great opportunities with really great organisations that are understanding, you know, a lot of them do have some kind of, you know, anxiety and depression is, is rife in, in the industry. I'm not sure if it's a product of or, you know, it just attracts those kind of people, including myself, that get a lot of support from their organisation. Mental health days, you know, work from home today or, you know, when we're in the office or, you know, if you want a day with no meetings, just have a day with no meetings. How are you going to work best? And let's support and encourage that. So definitely a lot of change in the last 20 years. 
So I just want to flip around one of the comments you made in there and you talked about, you know, you actually talking to and helping other young women through their careers and mentoring them and that sort of thing. Can you just tell us maybe have there been a couple of people or any particular people through your career that have mentored you and have been especially encouraging or, you know, you kind of look at them and go, they're kind of like my cyber superhero? I can't narrow it down to one, unfortunately, or fortunately. Over a long career, there's there's quite a few. To, when I got started, a particular colleague, Andrew Pollock, he mentored me and helped me build up my technical skills. Took me under his wing and always was there to provide me with some challenges. He got me to hack his email server, for example, you know, to send me an e- like an email going hack my email server and send me an email from my own email server so I'd go off and do that you know throughout the years from a leadership perspective Jackson McKinley who I worked with when I worked at Mandiant was my leader there just learned a lot in his leadership style that I really really admire and thought was how I would like to be a leader and how I would like to manage and then recently from the digital forensics perspective would be Paul Prattley who probably gave me the biggest leg up in digital forensics and again mentored me through how to do all of the engagements including how to deal with really horrible customers sometimes <laughs> that were very angry at things that we found so yeah it, there's there's probably more definitely more and particularly women who have been there and got my back for a long time but yeah very many to to mention thank you so much for your time today shana no problem thanks for having me And now it's over to Beck and Mark. Thanks, Anthony. Really excited to be back for another month. And I'm joined once again by the lovely Mark Carey-Smith. How are you you today, Mark? I'm great, Beck. How are you doing? Oh, I'm waiting for Christmas, Mark. Let's get this done. Let's get through. (laughs) A few months to go. Oh, my gosh. I feel like we can blink and a month has just passed since our last episode. And I'm very timely by the conversation with, with Shana there going, yes, there's very easy ways for breaches to happen. And I think we've had some good examples of that in the last month. Unfortunately, we have, and that's likely to continue. Yes, but that is that is the life of cybersecurity, I guess. And well, hopefully it'll start to ease up as the end of the year approaches. But really think that was a very timely conversation between Anthony and Shana. And yeah, thank you both for your time. So building on that, I think there's a lot that we can talk from our perspective about what we've been working on. No surprise to our audience, I'm sure, that of Cert 2023 is in the planning right now. And we're always looking for ways to improve and expand how we do things at the conference. Is there ways that we can polish things? So I'd really like to tap into that diversity and inclusion piece that Shana was talking about. So, and I know that you're helping with a number of projects, so I'm very grateful for your support. So let's start with, we've had some great help from the lovely Lydia Giuliano. Most people know that she was involved with B-Sides Melbourne, and this year they did some great ways and initiatives to try and improve their inclusions. Let's talk about speaker mentoring. It was really great to have a conversation with Lydia just recently, and we're very grateful for her time and her brilliant ideas. And we're also lucky to speak with Lucas from B-Sides Melbourne too. So they have a treasure trove of brilliant minds to contribute to the running of that conference. And their willingness to share. (laughs) And their willingness to share, which is great. So one of the things that we heard from both Lucas and Lydia was the benefits that can be gained for assisting first-time speakers into their first on-stage conference speaking gig, particularly trying to encourage people from generally underrepresented backgrounds to feel comfortable speaking and to get over the I've got nothing to say fear that lots of people have. 
Yeah, I'm really excited because I think there's that's a really nice way to help people. There's a lot of people with so many skills in cybersecurity. It doesn't mean that they've got all the speaking skills and the confidence to get up there and share them. So if there's a way that we can be tapping into their brains and, and giving them the confidence to share with the rest of the audience, it's a great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I, one of the things that was really interesting speaking with Lydia recently was that how much how much the mentors enjoyed the mentoring process. So it wasn't just that new speaker mentees felt better supported and that it helped them progress professionally and personally in feeling comfortable giving a conference presentation for the first time. It was how incredibly beneficial it was for the mentors that assisted them through that process. And that's one of the things that I've heard in relation research into kindness because this really is an aspect of kindness, assisting someone because they need help, is how beneficial kindness is, not just from the perspective of the receiver of a kind act, but from the giver of a kind act. And in fact, people that are just observing a kind act also get a little boost in their well-being. So that's a pretty awesome thing to think about, particularly in relation to what we can control. It's nice that we're learning something from this year's keynote from Kath Koshal about kindness, so we can keep that going. That's right. We're all about the kindness here. I love that. Love that. So the other part that I wanted to touch on there is the idea of helping people identify topics. So make sure everybody keeps an eye out. We'll be promoting a session for mid-January to make sure you've got plenty of time to get those sessions in before call for presentations close. But yeah, how are we going to help people identify a topic to speak on? Because everyone says... I've got nothing to talk about. Yeah. And in fact, I had exactly the same thought myself yesterday morning. But it's not all about me. It's <laughs> Only <about>, sometimes. <laughs> it's about the people we actually want to help. So yeah, I think part of it is, is just having a chat with people and talking about, well, what do you do? Tell, tell me about something you're working on recently. Tell me about something you're passionate about. And often those conversations can lead to an identification of, well, actually, you know, that's really interesting. People will want to hear about that. And for some people, that can come as a bit of a surprise that other people actually want to hear their point of view. So part of it, I think, really is just helping people understand that's interesting, you know. I yeah. want to hear about that, and I'm sure other people yeah. will too. Some of the greatest presentations I think that people have enjoyed the most, including myself, are those ones where people have shared a project that they're working on or you know, some of the learnings that they've had, some of the blocks that they've had to overcome. So take people on a journey, and I think it's unusual to have a job where that, there's not one case where that's come up where you can talk about something that you've had to work through and overcome and get to a final result. Yeah, exactly. I mean, storytelling is an ancient art and, and, you know, there's lots of research to show people are attracted to story. And, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, the kinds of things we want to hear about at the conference are people's interesting journeys and particularly how they overcame adversity in order to achieve good outcomes. Everyone wants to hear a good story, Absolutely. particularly a story they can apply to their own experience. Yeah. Okay, so we're tackling the program side of things of having better diversity and inclusion. What are we going to do about attendees? One of the things that we're going to tackle at next year's conference is to try and get better representation. Well, not try and, get better representation. At first, at least from a gender perspective, from the participants that are able to take part in tutorials because the first two days of the conference consist of tutorials and they're amazing learning opportunities but some of them the, the, the tutorials that are limited on 
attendance because some tutorials have a have a set limit on the number of people that can participate. Sometimes they book out pretty quickly. So something that my colleague Alex Webling and I piloted in this year's conference in the, in the workshop that we ran was to set effectively a soft limit on the number of participants that could enroll in the course and then everybody else that wanted to enroll went into a, a waiting list and then Alex and I looked at the waiting list and we said, right, these people appear to identify as women, let's push them into the, into the run-on squad, if you like, so that those people were able to participate in the conference too. And I, th I think it worked really well and we were able to get a better representation and we had some really great perspectives from people. I think one of the benefits... So it's not just the fact that having greater representation in tutorials leads to better outcomes for individuals and the cybersecurity community. It's also that the other participants in the tutes or workshops get benefit from the fact that they're hearing from a different range of people. Yeah, different perspective. Exactly. Yeah. We have some pretty complex and difficult problems to solve in cybersecurity, so having as many diverse opinions as possible leads to better outcomes. And look, to be honest, it's just more interesting, I think, to have a greater representation of points of view. Yeah, for those group discussions and activities, you're obviously going to get better perspectives if there's a different balance of people in the room. That's great. Yeah. yeah, I'm really excited. I think, you know, it's nice that there's a lot of parts of the conference that we do the same way year on year because they work, but there's always room for improvement and, and change. And, and if there's ways that we can sort of tweak things here and there for better outcomes, it's, it's, it actually makes my life more interesting too, to be honest. Oh, yeah, totally. And this is one of the lovely things about working at OSA is the autonomy that we have and the agency mm. that we have to make things better in the services that we provide to members. And, you know, an important part of that is the conference. Yep, lovely. I guess just a snapshot that the conference is, just in case you haven't got it in your diary already, it is May 9th till 12th in 2023. We are back at the Star at the Gold Coast, so very exciting. And call for presentations is due to open in the next couple of weeks, so make sure you're keeping an eye on your emails and social media because we will be shouting to the rooftops very soon and all will be revealed with our lovely theme and graphics, which I'm very excited about. So... Yeah, we're back on the path of us at 2023 and can't wait to see what new insights we get by then. Yeah, and I'd, I'd just like to reiterate for first time speakers, it, it, it's such a good experience speaking at the OSCERT conference in particular. It was my first experience speaking at a conference apart from academic conferences and it was just such a good experience and it just opened a, 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 whole, a whole lot of doors for me in terms of just having conversations with people I didn't know and, and just increasing my networking circle greatly. And just it just made the experience so much better. And, you know, the conference organisers always treat you super well. It is a supportive community. You know, yes. you know, I know there's a lot of attendees there, but I do feel like it is a bit more of a community kind of atmosphere that we, we aim for. So yeah. yeah. Also worth noting that don't let money be the reason that you're not submitting your CFP is we for all speakers that are successful we support travel and accommodation and registration so that is all covered for you if you're willing to invest the time in our program we want to invest in getting you there having someone put you up in a five-star hotel pay for you it's a nice little part yes, isn't it's, it <laughs> it's pretty nice it makes the experience that bit sweeter I yes. think yeah but you know it's a lot of effort to put together a presentation and I'm hoping that people put in a lot of time and effort into doing that so that's our way of saying thank you yeah yeah
Lovely. All right. That's us done for another month. Thank you so much for joining me, Mark. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, the Ossert podcast. Thank you to Shanna and to Beck and Mark for their contributions to this month's episode. We'll be back next month with another episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, with new guests and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. If you want to know more about Ossert, be sure to visit ossert.org.au. 